We are looking at Acts 15 this morning. If you would turn there with me. That's page 923 in the Pew Bible. Acts 15. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning, but I'm just going to begin by reading verses 1 through 21. Let me read this for us. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, After this I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Well, it's been said that in the heart of every human being, inside all of us, deep down, There is a legalist. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never met anyone who would actually call themselves a legalist. It's not like anyone's Facebook profile. Facebook profile has religious views, legalism. Um, 
And yet I think there's still a good case to be made that it's a problem in us all. In 2008, the Coke company released Diet Coke Plus. Do you remember that? Of course you don't. It was basically Diet Coke enriched with vitamins and minerals. Uh, Apparently someone thought this was a good idea. As if Diet Coke doesn't taste awesome enough. Let's put some vitamins in it and see what happens. Um, Well, the the soda was apparently supposed to appeal to more health-conscious customers. Uh, As it turns out, soda drinkers aren't... uh, really health conscious. They're not really in it for the vitamins. Uh, So the product was discontinued just a few years later. And now it's forgotten into oblivion. And you know, of course, from a mile away, everybody could see that Diet Coke Plus was a total mistake. But you know, in the spiritual realm, the danger is always there to add a little something of our own To put some sort of plus into the spiritual equation. And you know, though we might not say it explicitly, at the heart level, don't we often really doubt whether Jesus is enough? Oh, faith in Jesus Christ is good so far as it goes, but it's got to be that plus something, doesn't it? In order to really belong, in order to really be sure of God's acceptance, in order to really have peace within, we need Jesus plus. Plus, well, fill in the blank. Baptism, good works, a certain political persuasion, right or left, a particular emotional or spiritual experience, like speaking in tongues or being baptized in the Spirit. Whatever it is, we act as if there must be something put on top of faith in Jesus in order to really make us right with God. I wonder, do you know what you yourself are prone to add? Of course, this tendency of our inner legalists always striving striving to add something on top of Christ for our salvation often goes completely unnoticed, totally under the radar. We don't even realize we're doing it. That is, until we meet a group of Christians who are very different from us. Like what happens here in Acts 15. Last week we saw that the Gentiles were putting their faith in Christ and coming into the church in large numbers. And then Luke tells us in verse 1 here that some Jewish believers had come down to Antioch where there were a large number of Gentile believers and said, hey, it's great that you guys have come to believe in Jesus, but you know, in order to be saved, you need to get circumcised and keep the regulations of Moses. And like a bomb, this is what ignites the events of Acts 15 and the so-called Jerusalem Council. On the surface, the question is this. Do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be true Christians? The Pharisee party in verses 1 and 5 seems to be advocating the ceremonial laws of Moses, especially circumcision, really as a way for those dirty Gentiles to clean up their act and join the family. But, you know, if on the surface this seems like a historically kind of remote thing to us, we really have to see that it actually strikes a much deeper question. 
a question that is relevant for every age and for every heart. And it's this, is faith in Jesus really enough? Or do we have to add something of our own in in order to be truly accepted by God and welcomed in full standing into the people of God? That's the big question driving this chapter, and that's the main thing we're going to focus on this morning. And what unfolds in this chapter is one of the most significant theological events, not just in the book of Acts, but probably in the whole Bible. Because what we see here defended and defined is the very nature of the gospel of grace. Now, before we get to the sort of momentous decision that they make and how they came to it and what some of the practical implications are, I think Luke wants us to see in verses 1 through 5 that the gospel will always face this threat of works righteousness. This is the first point of five that I'm going to make. Uh, Your roast will burn in the potluck oven downstairs. No, I'm kidding. We'll move quickly. Five points. First, the gospel is always going to face the threat of legalism, of works righteousness. Now, think of all the challenges and dangers that the church has undergone just in the last three chapters of Acts. I mean, in chapter 14 alone, Paul and Barnabas, on the one hand, had been persecuted and thrown out of towns, and on the other hand, worshipped as gods. They, like, can't win, no matter which way they go. There are all sorts of external problems, but those external threats are really nothing compared to this internal threat. And did you notice that Paul and Barnabas react that way? There's no small dissension and debate, we read in verse 2. Luke here, not trying to cover up or sort of, you know, whitewash the events of the early church. No, there was no small dissension and debate. You see, the greatest danger to the gospel isn't necessarily irreligious paganism on the outside, but actually religious legalism on the inside. Do we really think that? When it comes to clarifying and preserving the gospel against this threat, the apostles are fully engaged and they take it with all seriousness and so should we. And you know, one of the reasons that legalism is so dangerous is because, as we said on the one hand, it's so pervasive. Isn't nearly every relationship that we have based in some way on our performance? Our acceptance comes from what we do or what we are at work, at school, and sadly, even among our friends and family, it seems that that's just the way the world works, so why wouldn't we just map that on to our relationship with God? Martin Luther said, this is basically the default mode of the human heart, that I think my acceptance is based on my performance. Pervasive. But on the other hand, it's dangerous because it seems so plausible, doesn't it? I mean, after all, why wouldn't God want us to chip in and do our part? Doesn't he want us to live good lives? Why wouldn't that kind of calculate into the equation? Didn't God give the law of Moses in the first place? It seems so plausible, so easy to believe that we would have to make some sort of contribution to our standing before God. It's pervasive and it's plausible. Well, how does the church respond And how should we? Luke tells us in verses 6 through 21, this sort of long second section of his narrative. And this is really our second big point. And what we see here is that from the very start, the message of the apostles 
And therefore, the message of the true church has always been that salvation is through faith in Christ alone, apart from any sort of works. That nothing needs to be added and nothing can be added to what Christ has done for us. That we're brought into God's family wholly and completely by God's gift, by his grace, through believing in his son. Now Luke shows us how they came to reaffirm this in verses 6 through 21. First, Peter sort of steps forward and he says, hey, look at what God has done. And then James comes forward and says, listen to what God has said. God's acts and God's words both aligning to affirm the gospel of grace. Look in particular at verses 8 through 9. This is sort of the heart of Peter's speech. Peter says, look at what God has done. Utterly apart from circumcision, through faith and faith alone, God has cleansed the hearts of the Gentiles and given them the Holy Spirit. You know there that Peter's referring back to his experience with Cornelius, the Gentile Cornelius and his household that Luke told us about back in, in Acts 10 through 11. You see, when Peter shared the good news about Jesus with them, before they had really done anything, no circumcision, no baptism, no altar call, no decision card, simply through hearing the gospel preached to them and believing what they heard, God's Spirit fell upon them. His Holy Spirit dwelt in them, giving evidence that God had made their hearts clean and fit for his own holy presence to reside within them. You see, what's going on here, as I alluded to earlier, is that, you know, most first century Jews, especially those who would have been more theologically aligned with the Pharisee party, considered the Gentiles as a whole unclean, pretty much unfit for God's presence. But what the advocates of circumcision in verses 1 through 5 didn't seem to realize And what all of our inner legalists don't realize is that the cleansing we actually need is more than just an outward ceremonial cleansing. You see, our problem as human beings is much more profound than that. What we need are our hearts to be cleansed. And that's why no amount of legal regulations or external law-keeping can ever take away the guilt and shame that we so often feel. You see, our problem isn't that we just do a few bad actions here or there and need to rehabilitate some behaviors. That's not actually the biblical view of what's wrong with us, of sin. Sin, biblically speaking, is a deep heart problem. It's the tendency we all have to want to live our own way. And to be our own lords. To define things the way we decide to define things. And thereby, whether we realize it or not, in so doing, rejecting God's rightful rule over us. If you simply try to clean up on the outside, whether through religious rites like circumcision or just plain moral effort through doing good works, You're actually not changing the root of the problem. You're not cleansing the heart. And so you still feel guilt and distance from God, even though you're trying your best to be good. And it's never good enough. And you know, the sad reality is is that the very attempt to clean yourself up from the outside 
is actually just one more expression of your rebellious, self-reliant heart trying to be your own Lord and trying to dig yourself out and ironically thereby still rejecting God as the only Savior and Lord. What a quandary we're in as human beings. But Peter's testimony is that what we could never do through works, God has done in us through trusting in his son, that he's actually cleansed our hearts. He's wiped away the stain once for all, and he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within. And God did this, Peter says in verse 9. Did you catch that? Making no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Look at verse 11. We believe that we, that is we Jews, Peter's saying here, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. There's no difference. None of our law keeping up till this point made a hell of beans difference in cleansing our hearts. We needed the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they do. By the way, this is why the reformers spoke of salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They were simply saying what Peter says here in Acts 15. So Peter points to what God has done to reaffirm the gospel. What God has done is he's cleansed our hearts by faith apart from circumcision. Then in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas get up and they sort of, they sort of support Peter's argument by sharing some of their experience of what God has done among the Gentiles. And then James stands up. James, probably, as we know from other first century historians, an incredibly devout Jewish man, scrupulous about keeping the law. James stands up and points now not to what God has done, but to conclude the matter of what God has said. He quotes the Old Testament prophet Amos, where God promised that one day the true Davidic king would at last come, that the broken down house of David would finally be repaired and restored. And then, through that king, God would call out a group of Gentiles, a remnant from all nations, every people, every tongue, every tribe, and he would put his name on them, and they would belong to the one true Lord, get this, as Gentiles. That's the significant point that James finally sees in the prophets. That they become God's people And they do so while remaining Gentiles. And therefore, they need not become Jews. Because God said he was going to do it all along. So do you see how the church came to its conclusion? This critical moment of theological and practical pastoral significance. What, What God did to the apostles was what God had said he would do through the prophets. That God's words and God's actions lined up. And that sealed it. And they knew that the Gentiles need add nothing to their faith in Christ to belong to the family of God. Now, 
Having clarified the gospel, James begins to apply it. Now, this is our third point, and we see it not just in verse 19 after he quotes the Amos passage, but also back in verse 10. Because we're saved through faith in Christ alone, we are freed from the burden of the law. The law, which Peter described in verse 10, as an unbearable yoke. Instead of getting circumcised, the Gentiles are free. But of course, there's more at stake here than merely the question of of circumcision. It's that nothing needs to be added to faith in Christ. And that means that the burden of measuring up, of meeting the standard, the struggle and trouble of fulfilling the law, of winning approval, that whole burden has been lifted. It's been cut loose. And you're free. You know, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you realize this about Christianity. How radical it is. How unique it is. You see, what Christianity is all about is not following some clever set of rules or unique religious duties in order to get God's approval like so many other religious systems that exist. Rather, what Christianity is all about is about receiving God's approval freely through another and being freed from the crushing weight of a performance-based legalism that's latent in all of our hearts. It's about receiving this as a gift. And of course, that's incredibly humbling, isn't it? Our pride loves the thought of contributing to our redemption. And it recoils against thinking that we have nothing in our hands to bring. But don't you see how liberating this is? That you can finally step off the hamster wheel of what really amounts to self-salvation. That you can finally be set free from hunting for the latest spiritual technique to give you a breakthrough. That you can finally stop searching for the latest TED Talk that will promise you success and the secret of fulfillment and how to win friends and influence people and save the planet, as fine as all those things are. Finally sets you free from that latest fad, whatever it is, that's going to set you apart and mark you out as in the know and in the now. Christ says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm enough for you. Come to me. And you know, for Christians, we need to be constantly reminding ourselves of this truth too, that we're free from the burden of the law. And for at least two reasons, real quickly. First, because as we alluded to earlier, whatever standard we set up in addition to faith in Christ for genuine spirituality, for true salvation, becomes the very thing that will divide us and destroy us. Pride and judgment will spring up in all directions. New believers will be troubled and unsettled by these self-made standards that we impose. Their growth will flounder. And the greatest, saddest tragedy of all is that Christ won't get the glory for the salvation he has won, but it will start to sort of be taken up by ourselves. As we look down our noses at those who don't measure up, as we congratulate ourselves on all the good things that we've done or all the sort of 
insider things that we've picked up on and can now perform. But you know, the second reason is that we need to constantly remind ourselves that we're free from the burden of the law is because so many of us, even as believers, still live under the weight of a sort of unresolved guilt and shame. It comes from a lot of different places, but you know, we, we, we can often look at our sort of performance as a Christian or look at our performance as a spouse or look at our performance as a parent or as a friend and we just find that we don't measure up even to our own standards let alone the standards of everyone else who's blogging online about how amazing they are. Right? And here's where the gospel comes in. And the gospel comes in and says something at first utterly counterintuitive. Because the gospel comes and says, you know, cheer up. You are a lot worse than you think you are. (laughs) You know, your sin goes a lot deeper than your little failures and you're blowing it with the kids every once in a while and you're not measuring up for all your vegan friends. The gospel comes in and says, you've rebelled against the God who created you. It's a lot worse than you think. But then the gospel says this, cheer up, you're more loved than you think you are. Seeing the depth of your rebellion and the utterly spiritually helpless state you were in, Christ came and died for you because he loves you. The perfect son of God took on your fallen human flesh and died a death in your place that was totally and completely and utterly sufficient to cover and cleanse all of your stains, past, present, and even the future. It is sad that many churches today teach that something must be added to faith in Christ in order for a person to be truly saved. You know, maybe you grew up in a church like that. I don't know. A church that maybe talked a lot about Jesus as a distant figure of power or maybe sort of a chummy friend that you should hang out with and get to know and emulate when it comes to social justice. But at the end of the day, all the emphasis was on what you have to do. And and maybe the church that you grew up in even told you that it was presumptuous to think that you can know whether or not God will accept you in the end. Because after all, they say, you got to live a good life and then God decides. But friends, listen to this. That is not the gospel. That's not what the apostles taught. And any church, no matter how big or how old or how nice the people are, any church that says we're saved by anything other than God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is not teaching true Christianity. In the passage we read earlier that Myanmar read for us, Paul says, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If we could somehow give ourselves a little push into the kingdom, why would the Son of God have to die for our sins? And so the cross becomes the great display 
that our works can play no role in God forgiving us and accepting us either now or in the last day. And the cross becomes the great display that the good news is so much better than that. It's so much better than a works-based salvation. It's the liberating, burden-lifting grace of Jesus Christ. And of course, all this immediately raises the question, doesn't it, for a lot of people, that if we're really saved sheerly by grace, wouldn't that lead to completely immoral lifestyles? I mean, come on. If I knew that God accepted me totally through grace, apart from what I did, if my works had nothing to do with it, man, wouldn't I just do whatever the heck I kind of wanted? But interestingly, that's not what we see here at the Jerusalem Council. And this is our fourth point that Luke shows us. That yes, the gospel of grace frees us from the law, but it compels us to love. In verses 20 through 21, James lists some things that he says Gentile Christians ought to avoid. Now, this list was probably a bit maybe befuddling for you and maybe kind of gross. Let's talk about blood. And, of course, the question is, what is James referring to? Now, some think, some commentators think that James is saying, hey, look, stay away from things that are going to needlessly offend your Jewish brothers and sisters for the sake of unity. You don't have to get circumcised, but, you know, stay away from, like bloody cuts of meat because all your Jewish friends aren't going to really like that. It's going to be hard to fellowship with them. So don't needlessly offend. But, so basically some curtail your freedom for their sake out of love for them. But you know, some think, some commentators think that James is describing not particular sort of Old Testament Levitical codes here, but actually he's looking outside into the pagan world and he's describing pagan temple practices. He's telling them, in other words, not to stay away from a particular menu in the church, but from a particular venue. From those places where idol worship and the attendant sexual immorality that often surrounded pagan temples, where all of that would have been explicit and rampant. James is saying, hey, look, stay away from that. Steer clear. Now, here's what's interesting about that. That seems kind of obvious to us, right? But that would have been an even bigger and harder sacrifice for Gentile Christians. An even bigger act of love than staying away from non-kosher foods. And here's why. Because so much of ancient civil and, and social life in whatever city you lived in revolved around your local shrine, your local temple. It was the center of the sort of, not just religious life, it was the center of political life. In some cities, it was the center of economic life. And James, in essence, was saying, hey, now the gospel shapes all your priorities, even if it means becoming something of a social outcast and all your friends thinking you're weird because you won't go down to sacrifice to the emperor or to the local sort of tribal deities. You can imagine the conversations that Gentile Christians must have had with their non-believing Gentile friends. What? You're not coming to the temple? Why not? Look, look, look. you don't have to sacrifice. Just come. Why? I mean, it must have been utterly baffling to them. Completely off the map. 
Why would they give up such a thing for the sake of those weird, kind of fundy Jews who are keeping all those rules that now identify with this king you call Jesus? And friends, the reason deep down why they could do this is because they knew that this Jesus, the king, their savior, had given up his rights and laid down his life for their sake. And now it was no small thing for them to lay down their rights and to lay down their lives for their brothers and sisters, even the ones who were very different from them. See, the gospel of grace frees us from the law and it compels us to love. If in Christ we have everything we need, everything we need, if he's utterly sufficient for righteousness and life and salvation, if nothing needs to be added to what he's given us solely and completely through faith, if a heart resting in him and cleansed by him is and filled with the Holy Spirit of, of love and joy and peace, if that's a reality, if that's what you're full of in Christ, then to give up certain things out of love for a brother or sister in Christ, that becomes the most natural thing in the world. It becomes a glad privilege to give up things. Because you really lose nothing in giving them up. Because you have everything in him. And you know, this is something that legalism can never do. Legalism often gives the appearance of morality, doesn't it? Of doing good. But ultimately, isn't it self-centered? You see, if you're doing good ultimately to get a good standing with God or to prove yourself, then you're really doing good ultimately for your own sake, aren't you? You see, only when the gospel liberates you from the need of self-justification and earning God's favor, only when you're free from that, will you ever start loving other people for their sake, for love's sake, and not for your own sake. Isn't there a deep irony here that some people are wary of the gospel of utterly free grace because they think it might destroy the motivation for good works, when in reality only the gospel of free grace can give you the right and good motivation to actually do a good work. And friends, if we've come to trust in Jesus who died and lives again, who gives us his spirit, then good works will flow forth. Finally, then, the last point. The last point that we see in this passage is found in verse 30 through 35. After the council in Jerusalem sends a delegation back to Antioch with a letter sort of outlining their decision, Luke gives us this description of what happens. Let's look at verse 30. So they were sent off. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The last point that we see here is that working hard to preserve the gospel is of utmost importance for the church's health. I mean, no doubt, what we've just been reading, this council of Jerusalem, was hard work. 
They discussed and they debated. They had long nights looking at Scripture, talking about what God had done, hashing out the implications. They traveled long miles and travailed long hours over this matter. It was hard work. Just think how easy it would have been for the church in Antioch simply to say, forget this. We're just going to ignore the church in Jerusalem because they're like so ten years ago and we're the cutting edge. Sayonara. But no, they do the long, hard work of coming to an agreement and of reaffirming the gospel of grace and the complete sufficiency of faith in Christ. But in the end, as Luke shows us here, it was totally worth it. What's the result? A church full of joy, verse 31. A church that's strengthened, verse 32. A church that comes and goes in peace, verse 33. Why all these things? Because they worked hard to preserve the gospel. What about us, friends? Do we work hard with one another to uphold and clarify and reaffirm the gospel of grace in one another's lives? Or are we prone to quickly just kind of write people off or to ignore or to judge or to just go our own way? I mean, after all, think of how much time was spent on this issue. Paul and Barnabas could have been out planting churches and making more disciples. Instead, they trekked the whole way to Jerusalem and dove headlong into a thorny theological debate. Not for the sake of merely being right, but for the sake of the church's health. Because they knew that in the long run, the vitality of the church depended on this issue. They weren't going down to Jerusalem to argue about the color of carpets in the pews, but they went down to get the gospel right. And friends, the vitality of our church will too depend on the clarity of the gospel. You know, we talk a lot at Trinity about being a gospel-centered church, of being gathered, not by all the things that we like, but gathered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talk about being changed, being changed not by sort of hard effort, although there's some of that, not being changed by the next trick or fad, but being changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we talk about being sent out, of going forth in mission, not merely because we want to do good works, although that's great. But we get sent out because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do we talk so much about being a gospel-centered church? This is why. Because as we see in verses 30 and 35, it's the gospel clarified, taught, and celebrated that brings joy and strength and peace to the church. Today we're heading into what many church traditions call Holy Week. This is the week when we remember the central events of Jesus' death and resurrection. Easter coming in a week. Good Friday on Friday. Let me challenge you to do something this week that will deepen your understanding of the gospel. The church email this week included some devotionals for Holy Week. That would be a good place to start. Lots of books downstairs in the bookstall. Four Gospels in your New Testament to read. You just pick one. Maybe you want to meet with a friend this week to talk in depth about how the gospel of free grace 
is at work in your lives and pray together that it would take deeper root in you. Some of you might be thinking, that's the weirdest thing I would ever ask someone to do. But now I just gave you permission, so it won't be weird. She's so like, hey, remember how Pastor Nick said that weird thing we should do? Let's do that. Okay, great. I'll try it. Whatever you do, do something. But know this, friends, that whatever hard work you invest will be worth the effort. Here it is, joy, strength, and peace. Are you wanting those things in your life? Do you want those things in your relationships? Do you want those things in our church? Then hold firm to the gospel and dive into its depths and let it expose your inner legalist. Let it do that uncomfortable work of showing you all the ways in which you're prone to add things to what Christ has done. Dive into it together. And then experience again the freedom from the law's demands and the power to actually love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for giving us in Jesus a sufficient Savior. Forgive us for how we add to what you have done. God, open the eyes of those who are maybe even now seeing for the first time that salvation comes freely and wholly by grace. Father, by your spirit, do that work among us, we pray.